Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. A big thank you to the sponsor for today's episode, City Strength. City Strength are an online powerlifting and strength training apparel store, and they're the exclusive distributor for SBD in Australia. You can check out their full range at citystrength.com.au, or if you want to try before you buy, you can visit their store in Marrickville. Until midnight on the 20th of April, they're offering a 10% discount for Weekly Weights listeners, so at checkout, type in Weekly Weights 10. That's all capitals, Weekly Weights, spelt just like the podcast, 1-0. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Weekly Weights. I'm Will. With me is Alex, and with us this week is Eric Helms. Eric Helms is a bodybuilding and powerlifting coach. He works with 3DMJ. He's also got his pro card as a natty bodybuilder. Is that correct, Eric? Wink if I'm correct and shake if I'm incorrect. I'm sort of, sort of correct. I got pro qualified in 2011, last show I did. I haven't competed as a pro yet, though. So, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah we'll, we'll count it. Yeah, ostensibly pro Sweet. bodybuilder. Um, <laughs> also known for having a brain. He's a PhD candidate at, is it Auckland University? Correct? I, fi- I finished my PhD in 2017. So oh, I'm wow. just a, a, guy, a guy with a PhD. Okay, so he's a doctor now. Um, he's a, he does a research review mass along with one of our previous guests, Greg Knuckles, Mike Zordos, and is it just you three? Just us three. Just you three. Um, and he's also published a couple of books, which are great reads. There's the Muscle and Strength Training Pyramids, and is it called the Nutritional Pyramids? Is that the other one? So that, that's the title for both. There's just one for nutrition and one for training. Yeah. Um, so anyway, prolific guy has written a bunch of other articles you can access elsewhere. He's all over YouTube, been on lots of podcasts. If you know us, you probably know him. Eric, welcome to the show. How badly did I bumble that? Hey, we're here. We, we knocked it out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's done. You can tick those things off the list. So we're, we're, we're with, with the collaboration that we had, we got there. So it's all good. Terrific. Um, the topic for today's episode is auto-regulation. Um, and that was, that's a big part of the research that you've done. So can we just start by defining what autoregulation is? Yeah, for sure. And a few different uh, definitions have popped up in the, uh, the literature surrounding this. Probably the first uh, was in super training by good old Sif and Rukoshansky back in the day. Um, and essentially, if I paraphrase it, the definition would be uh, training that money. Look at that. For those who are just listening via audio, they just showed me super training, establishing their credentials as nerds. I haven't read it. Um, however, of course not. No one has actually read Super Training. They have tried and been confused. <laughs> super Training uh, reads you. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. You largely just keep it on your bookshelf to look smart in front of other SNCs. And then they give you the wink that says, I haven't read this either, but I also have it on my shelf. Um, so anyway, yeah. So uh, auto-regulation, uh, as you don't know from not reading it, uh, is defined in Super Training. Um, and the paraphrase of what it is is essentially training that adapts to uh, the individual uh, to optimize progress and recovery. Uh, so the idea is that the rate of progress, uh, at least in the super training definition and what you might see in APRE, uh, which is a, uh, a paper published about autoregulation back in 2010 by Brian Mann, is a model of progression that adapts to the individual over time, uh, allowing an individualized rate of progress to optimize performance. That was very textbook. 
That was extremely textbook. It sounds like you've been published talking about this. It's a good start. Yeah. So when, a couple of times. <laughs> so when we when we do adjust training for the individual, what types of training variables are typically adjusted? Now, yeah, that that perfect. So let's move away from that textbook definition to to what we're actually doing in practice here. Uh, in practice, um, auto regulation, we're essentially doing what any good coach would do, but just using that form of auto regulation, meaning that there's something built in or that you're assumed to be doing on your own, right? So um, a good coach, let's say you're an S&C for a rugby team and they've got a game on Saturday uh, and you've got them planned to deadlift on, let's say, Thursday. Uh, nothing crazy, nothing heavy, but it's still, you know, pushing deadlifts a couple days before a game and someone comes in and their back is already sore, you would probably not have them deadlift unless you uh, we're a crappy coach. Um, so you would modify something based on the realities of the situation. Someone comes in and they're ill. You might have their, their training change. Someone comes in and they're just getting crushed by the way you have programmed. You drop the load. All of those things that we would just call like your baseline skill level of coaching and common sense are what you can build into an autoregulatory program to customize it to the individual more often. Now, if you look at the research, there's a lot of different variables you can autoregulate. There have been published papers on autoregulating the frequency at which you, in which you train, which just came out kind of cool. Uh, the training order of your sessions. So you might do heavy, easy, moderate, or some other order based on how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis based on some metric. Uh, there are papers on autoregulating exercise selection uh, from a certain list based on what you'd prefer to do. Um, there are probably the most commonly thing I'm, I'm known for uh, is auto-regulating load with RPE based on repetitions in reserve, basically proximity to failure. So you're not just programming the load on the bar, but also how many reps you're going to do based on how close to a RPE 10 or maximum you could do. Uh, and then there's systems using uh, RPE to regulate uh, the amount of volume you do or the number of sets or reps in a set. And you can do the same thing with velocity. If you have ability to track velocity, you can uh, auto-regulate the same variables you would with RPE. Um, there are other ways of auto-regulating things, but those are what's appeared in the literature. Uh, but really, any variable could be auto-regulated so long as you create some type of systematic approach. Uh, and it will be effective as is valid the, the way of doing it and as is effective as your ability to capture that data. So for example, if you have a metric that doesn't effectively assess a recovery status, then you might be chasing ghosts, for example. So that was a long answer to a simple question where I could have just said like load frequency and volume and, uh, and that would have been it. Well, so, this is why we got you on. Yeah, I got to ramble. Really, yeah, flesh out the podcast. <laughs> Longer the better. So you mentioned at the start of your very long answer, some of the theoretical advantages of auto-regulation training. How have these played out in the research and, and in practice? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, the, the main argument for autoregulation is simply that um, individuals are different, right? Uh, we shouldn't be following cookie cutter programs. We should be doing something uh, to account for the fact that we progress at individual rates uh, to highlight just how individual shit can be. There's a study by Hubble in 2005 where they took untrained individuals, had them trained for 12 weeks. They measured cross-sectional area and changes in 1RM strength. And there were changes in 1RM strength from 0%. Yeah, that's right. You lifted for 12 weeks and you got not stronger. 
uh, all the way up to 250%. Correct. That means you squatted 100 kilos, and at the end of the 12 weeks, you squatted 250 kilos. So that's the kind of crazy variations there are between humans. Now, this wasn't a squat study. It was like leg extension, so don't get your hopes up. It's not you. But um, huge variations in how much strength you can gain. Similar but not to the same magnitude in hypertrophy, uh, basically all the way from 0% to 60% increases in cross-sectional area. I believe it was either of the, the vastus lateralis or the biceps. I can't remember if it was a leg extension or arm curl study. Um, but I think that's pretty representative of what you will see if you get out there amongst enough people as a coach. You'll see a wide variety of responders um, in both hypertrophy and strength. So if we understand that people can adapt to very different degrees, uh, and then if you look at some of the other research, which shows that the same stimulus applied to the same to different people will produce different magnitudes of change. And then you can change that and get the opposite result. We've had studies showing that matching testosterone cortisol response to different set rep schemes uh, will individualize training to be more effective. And we've seen similar things with uh, some genotyping. So the point being, it's not just whether or not you're a responder or a non-responder or a middle or a high or a low responder, but also what you respond to and what I respond to, to the same magnitude might be two very different programs. So there's a lot that goes into individual differences, uh, and we can't know them um, in advance, but we can uh, adapt training to the individual. So autoregulation supplies us with a systematic approach to build, to build in uh, individualization to a program. Uh, another effective use of it is in the online coaching sphere. So as coaching moves more and more online, especially in powerlifting and bodybuilding, where this is a voluntary participation individual sport, uh, where most of the coaches uh, to get a decent pool of athletes are going to move beyond just having their own gym. They'll probably adjunct that with online coaching. It means that they're going to have less time having eyes on their clients. So they need to do more mentoring and give more resources and tools to their athlete so that they can be effectively doing some of the things the coach would be doing on their own. So that's why something like, I mean, you can use videos, you can do Skype, but the reality is, is I'm not going to be with you in the gym when you train. Uh, so having something like an RPE uh, and, and or velocity or other things allows you to regulate your load to some degree that would only be possible, say, like in 1995, if you had your weightlifting or Olympic lifting coach in the room with you. So those are the theoretical potential advantages. How that's played out in the literature has been largely neutral or positive. Uh, there's been no studies where someone has tried to auto-regulate training and it made things worse. Um, so we have uh, Brian Mann's study back in 2010 where they compared two different seasons in NCAA uh, and, uh, football, football players. That's gridiron. Um, and they looked at using a traditional linear periodized approach or a auto-regulated progressive resistance exercise approach, which just says, hey, we're going to progress the load on the bar based on your previous sets and previous workouts, how much progress you made. So if you weren't making progress, we won't increase load. If you're making a lot of progress, we'll increase load a lot, a little load a little bit. So we're matching progression to the rate of progress and they got significantly stronger compared to the other season. Uh, we also have uh, same year McNamara and Stern where they used that whole system of choosing whether you do an easy, hard or moderate day of weight training in a university college weight training class uh, in the States. And they found that the group that got to rate their, their perceived readiness on one to 10 and then select either easy, medium or hard workouts gain more strength on the leg press than a group that just had a fixed order over, over 12 weeks. Um, 
Fast forward from that, uh, we have a lot of data on velocity-based training, uh, largely showing not it's necessarily its superiority, but its utility. So for example, there was a study where they used velocity to auto-regulate volume. The idea was that you have a velocity cutoff. So I'd be tracking the, uh, the rate that the barbell is moving, and I'm gonna do reps with this given load, and I'm gonna stop doing reps uh, once I've had a certain amount of barbell slow down, right? One group's going to stop the reps when the barbell is slowed by 40% compared to the fastest rep, the other by 20%. So what happens? The group that stops after 20% maintains a higher velocity, does less total reps, and they get improvements in power, uh, while the group that does uh, reduction in 40% gets more total reps, more total volume, but trends slower, is not as powerful as the fast group, however, seems to have greater hypertrophy because they've done more volume. So it's a way to regulate the amount of volume to achieve specific desired adaptations. So that's one of the examples of it providing utility, but not necessarily saying, hey, this is better, because how can you really say that individualization is better at a group level? That's not really the way we, we do it. Um, and then finally, we had my uh, flagship study from my PhD, uh, where we compared percentage 1RM-based training uh, for the bench press and squat and train males to RPE-based training, trying to get them to roughly the same uh, baseline loading. If you were to compare like a rep to RPE, sorry, a percentage 1RM to RPE conversion chart, and then let their progress be dictated by the target RPEs or kind of a standardized increase in percentage 1RM. And while there were no statistically significant differences between groups and the absolute changes weren't large, effect sizes seemed to indicate uh, that perhaps and we need more research to really confirm this with larger sample sizes, uh, the RPE group gains strength a little faster. Um, so at least at this stage, we can be pretty confident uh, that uh, you won't be harming yourself by using velocity or RPE to dictate load. You might get a potential advantage um, and that uh, adapt progressing at a rate that allows you to progress relative to your individual needs is probably better than doing it at a fixed progression rate. Um, and that selecting training based on something that ac accurately uh, predicts your readiness is likely going to uh, improve your progress as well. Uh, and there's a little other data that we could go on, but it depends on how long you want me to monologue. Um, so I'll just leave it there for now. Right. Well, that was an exceptional monologue. Um, I actually, I was taking notes as you were speaking because I'd like to get off topic um, <laughs> just because you brought up so many Good. interesting things. So let's... Um, First thing, when you're mentioning the Hubble study, the one with the giant telescope, um, yep, you mentioned the you mentioned some non-responders, and I think I saw James Krieger at one stage write an article. It might have been James Krieger writing an article saying that non-responders to exercise tend to become responders with higher training volumes. So if you impose more training stress, um, I'd love to hear your comment on whether that plays out in the research and then in practice whether whether as coaches, the people who tend to be non-responders to our training programs are non-responders to training variables or whether in the case of like powerlifting, their issues might often be more execution based, more so than programming based. So your thoughts? Yeah. There's a lot of things that can go into someone being a quote unquote non-responder. Um, if you were to look at the data that I, I hinted at earlier on that testosterone cortisol stuff or the genotyping, where they've taken very different set rep combinations and they're effective in some people, but not in others. And that seems to be related to some individual uh, aspect. It could just be that they were non-responders to that program. So that's one potential 
uh, part of that Venn diagram of why someone might be a non-responder. Another reason is exactly what you hinted at, that uh, the efficiency of that volume is terrible. So for example, if you look at a bodybuilder or a powerlifter and the performance of their movements is crap, then that means per unit of volume, the effective stimulus will be lower or more injurious or less effective or something, right? Uh, so that means by potentially improving the quality of their reps or maybe their proximity to failure is nowhere near it should be and the, and the uh, researchers didn't control for that well enough, didn't push their subjects hard enough, um, or that non-target muscle groups getting trained because of momentum or poor form, et cetera, et cetera, then yeah, it might be a quality issue, which you can overcome with a ton of volume, but that's not the greatest way to deal with that. You know, oh, your squat form is terrible and your squat's not going up. Well, we'll just do 10 times as much squat volume with terrible form to make sure that it eventually does. That will work until it kills you. Um, so that, that's not the ideal way to go. You might want to, I don't know, fix their squat form. So certainly, uh, there are, there are many different individual situations which will warrant a different decision for volume. And I think most of the time, uh, when I see someone in practice doing a high volume program and not progressing, I would love to see them in the gym moving because that's often the problem. Um, with that said, and this is easier to look at in endurance training because A, there's more data, but B, there's less technical demands uh, for, for endurance training. Not that there aren't technical demands, but compared to resistance training. Uh, if you look at non-responders in terms of VO2 max adaptations to endurance training, when you give them simply more uh, volume of endurance training, they do start to adapt. So there's no reason to think that wouldn't be mirrored in resistance training, but we are lacking the data to show that. However, in uh, the recent study by uh, that Schoenfeld led that Krieger was involved with, along with other uh, authors, uh, they did seem to have more homogenous gains uh, in the higher volume group, meaning that there were less non-responders as volume increased. So at least we have some preliminary indication that that's probably true. Uh, again, I would only increase volume for a quote-unquote non-responder once I had ruled out everything else, including sleep, stress, uh, nutrition, and quality of, of training, uh, protein intake, et cetera, and all kinds of other stuff. Okay, so once we, like if we do have the coach's eye on the athlete, once we've ruled out that there is actually a just egregious technical error going on, um, are there sort of things that we can use to make inferences about whether it is, you know, the intensity range or the volume range or something with which we are training our athlete that is the problem here? Absolutely. I think there are. So with coaches eye on the athlete, you can tell a couple things. One is, is technique effective. Um, and two is there, is there perceived uh, proximity to failure uh, the same as the accurate or, or the actual proximity to failure. So the way you do this in online clients, have them send you videos and then have them tell you what the RPE is. And if they go, whew, that was a nine and you're going, ooh, that was a warm up. What are you talking about? That was nowhere near failure. Um, then that's the first thing to work on is actually making sure that the work they think they're doing is as at, at a high enough proximity to failure to actually get the adequate motor unit recruitment and start actually training those fibers and getting the adaptations they need. Um, I mean, obviously they're still going to adapt some from motor learning and other things and just the sheer accumulation of volume doing something. Um, but that, that's probably step one. So if you got a coach's eye, you can rule that out. So if we assume, Hey, uh, they're training hard enough that takes care of, uh, load or at least I should say effort. Uh, and that takes care of movement. Um, after that, you're going to have to go through a coaching process to ensure things like nutrition and sleep are taken care of. So, um, 
I would be asking them to start recording their sleep habits. When do they actually hit the hay? Uh, how often do they wake up? How do they feel when they wake up? Um, and if we really want to get crazy with it, they can get one of those apps and see how restless their sleep might be. Um, I'm not sure on the validity of those, but assuming it's decently valid, that could tell you something. And then maybe you can start doing things like improving sleep hygiene, like not looking at your phone while you're in bed, uh, dimming the lights in the house, um, actually just hitting your, hitting, hitting, hitting your head against the pillow earlier and then waking up later. Um, and, uh, you know, white noise machines, uh, naps before noon. If, if you simply can't get the sleep done in, in, in the main block, um, and, uh, and perhaps even meditation, uh, things to kind of just calm an anxious or restless mind to increase the likelihood of sleep. Uh, and then nutrition, obviously there's a whole lot to tack there. Uh, the big ones would be, um, do we have the right expectations set for our status of energy? So if someone is dieting for a show, cutting for a weight class, or trying to do something like maintenance and kind of skirting the low ends of their, uh, the energy, uh, intake range that they can maintain body weight at, then perhaps energy availability is an issue and we're not going to expect much in the way of performance and recovery. So perhaps strength gains will come uh, at a premium. Um, likewise, uh, protein intake. So if they're not at least around say 1.6 grams per kg, that's something you'd probably want to bump them up to. Uh, and then, uh, food quality. So making sure they're getting enough fruits and vegetables, uh, just to make sure that they're supplied with all of the micronutrients and, uh, polyphenols and all those fun flavonoids and phytonutrients that probably have some impact on recovery. Another big words that I can say, if that would impress you. Um, so Alex so lots checked of, out 10 minutes ago. <laughs> You've lost him. Perfect. He's got the That's actually the goal. It's not impressing someone. It's just overwhelming them with, with fake words and not having real knowledge so that they don't ask you hard questions. Yeah. Alex um, actually just asked me, is there a book he can look up the meaning of thesaurus in? Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think you need a dictionary for that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot of things to, I, I don't want to list everything, but the point yeah. is there's a lot that goes into um, your performance. There's even data, and this is also an argument for uh, auto-regulation, showing that the number of perceived negative life events that college students experience impacts the rate of strength gain they have during a program. Mm. So the idea that um, the cumulative effect of training, recovery, and then adaptation, yeah, sure, that equation is true, but it goes on. It's like taking that equation and throwing it into a blender. Like it's still in there, but it goes on with this big amount of background noise. Uh, whether you are in a relationship right now, how stressful it is, uh, whether or not uh, you are current, like there's, there's data showing that if you are uh, in, in a state of conflict with your significant other, you heal slower, which is crazy. Uh, there's, there's data showing that um, your perception of what your genes are have a larger effect on exercise outcomes than what your genes actually are. Uh, that's a recent study we just reviewed in mass. Um, so your belief that you have the quote unquote, the obesity gene or one of them is more likely to, for you to feel less satiated and eat more ad libitum uh, than if you actually have the obesity gene. And likewise, um, not having it, but believing, oh, sorry, having it, but believing you don't is more powerful than actually not just having it. So um, our beliefs and our expectations can sometimes influence psychology and physiology to the point where I would go as far to say that, that you believing that your program is optimal 
is would produce better outcomes uh, as far as actual strength and hypertrophy compared to you having a quote unquote optimal program for you, but you thinking it's crap because you followed some influencer who convinced you otherwise. So I think what you've just done in that last monologue was give us a really good global idea of the things as coaches that we can look at just outside of the immediate programming variables. And then at the end, at the end, you started talking about um, psychological factors and the way in which like athlete beliefs are important for gains. And that Mm -hmm. brings me to my next note that I wrote when you were talking, which was that because there doesn't seem to be any net negative effect of auto-regulating training, um, but it may make the athlete feel that training is more appropriate in terms of difficulty or that they have more sort of agency in the design of their training or in what they're doing, that there might be benefits. Is there any research suggesting a psychological benefit to auto-regulated training? Not directly, um, but I would say based on what we know from what motivates humans and makes them happy, uh, yes. So, uh, and I'm going to address something else too, so this will be another one of my ridiculously long answers. Um, So for one, from self-determination theory, we know that autonomy and competence are two of the three pillars that make a, someone feel uh, competent. And that goes into athletic performance, athletic identity, uh, perceived success, likelihood to stay in the sport as well. So your perception that you are competent as an athlete uh, and that you are autonomous, that you're in charge of your own athletic career uh, are very important parts of success long-term. And they predict uh, time spent on the treadmill and general population exercisers. Uh, they predict relationship with coaches and likelihood to stay in the sport. And generally, uh, self-determination theory is supported by some of these applied outcomes. Um, there's another cool study by Israel Halperin, uh, who does some combat athlete research and has looked at things like pacing and choice in athletes. And he had uh, kickboxers with an instrumented bag, so the, the bag that they were, they were striking could give them uh, kinetic readouts, so things like force output and velocity. And they found that uh, a fixed order of punches, even though it was the same punches, produced lower power outputs, I believe might have been velocity and force, uh, which should mean higher power. So I could be misquoting there, but was better, we'll just say more broadly, uh, than, I'm sorry, was worse than when the athletes got to choose Uh, what order they wanted to do those punches in. Now, you could take that as a psychological perspective as endorsement of SDT, self-determination theory, or you could just say, look, these experienced kickboxers know which order of punches uh, to throw that they feel most comfortable with and have an established motor pattern and can do so more more forcefully and powerfully versus having to think about a fixed order and perhaps that, that uh, messing up their game, their, their force outputs a little bit. So it could just be motor learning or it could be self-determination theory. So it's kind of indirect. So I would say theoretical support and some perhaps confounded, uh, actually applied data that would support the idea that, that having choice in your own training is a, a benefit. With that said, just because there's no negative effects of auto-regulation at the group level does not mean that there aren't individuals who will actually be more stressed by certain types of auto-regulation if it puts greater onus on them to think differently about their training than matches their temperament. So what I mean by that is if you're someone who really benefits from being a little bit non-intellectual uh, during training, so not actively constantly thinking about how was that, what was that, how close to failure was I, being uh, too cerebral, if that gets in your head and messes you up and makes you second guess everything, if it takes you 10 minutes to get an RPE score, Uh, maybe RPE isn't for you, at least right now. 
it is a skill and maybe get better at time, but I have lifters, actually very high level lifters that I've worked with for a very long time who we use RP in a limited sense because it can disrupt the emotional state where they perform best. Let's put it that way. So I do think anytime you are asking an athlete to record something, do something, change something, uh, write something down, uh, keep an eye on something, um, and basically keep something at the front of their mind that can have downstream effects that you might not consider. Uh, so it might be trying to individualize training more for them, but there could be a negative effect. Just like, let's say, testosterone cortisol might be a useful hormonal metric to, to decide training. But let's say the only reliable way to get that was blood. Uh, do we think getting testosterone cortisol is worth uh, taking blood from our athletes five days a week when they train? I'd probably say not. Sticking my athletes with a needle would probably be more disruptive to testosterone cortisol than the type of training they were doing, if I had to guess. So, um, yeah. So I think all those things have to be considered. So you mentioned that um, some people aren't suited to RPE training based on who they are. What are some of the factors that can influence um, how people rate their sets? That's a great question. So interesting phenomenon. So like if we were to go on Instagram, right? Um, God, this does my head in, by the way. This is my this is my pet peeve. I he's fucking, preempted you entirely, but he talks about it every week. I hate, I hate people who fuck up RPE so much. Anyway, they are they are bad people. Like morally, I agree. Yeah, I was going to say literally <laughs> top to bottom horrible people. Yes. <laughs> so it goes like you know like totalitarianism and then missing your RPEs is is, is my my oh, order I of. I think it's the other way around. <laughs> okay, so we're we're slightly different on the spectrum there. So you, you guys would rather be Hitler than uh, than miss an RPE. I respect that. Um, <laughs> Got to draw a line in the sand somewhere, I guess. Right. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, the, what we want to go on Instagram, what we typically see is someone grind something out and then rate the RPE being lower. Eight, right? eight, always eight. It's, there's no such thing as an RPE other than eight on Instagram. Now, I actually think this is a unique phenomenon to people in lifting culture trying to get social approval because they're being watched and hoping they're stronger than they are rather than what actually happens most of the time in the real world. Because if you look at studies that look at people going to failure and then rating their RPE before they get to failure, so for example, doing the singles on squats repeatedly, so just doing a set of squats and then calling out an RPE at the top or doing sets of bench and then locking out, calling an RPE, then keep going, almost every single time, not even almost, every single time, uh, the, at the group level at least, people are under-reporting RPEs. Now that is primarily not in powerlifters, I will give you that. That's primarily in just regular people who lift weights or don't lift weights who are now in a study doing this. And the higher the bracket of training experience goes, the, the more that gap narrows. But you rarely see uh, groups, uh, even among bodybuilders and powerlifters, who actually regularly overrate their training. So that might be something. Just yes. to clarify, when you say underreport RPE, do you mean they say they're more close to failure than they actually are or they're less close to failure? Yes, that was confusing the way I said that. Sorry. They think they've reached failure much earlier than they have. So when they say it's a 10, it's actually a 7 versus what we see on Instagram. When they say it's a 7, it's actually a 10. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's an interesting phenomenon in the research where people are um, holding themselves back more than you'd expect rather than, um, you know, saying I got three more when you looked like a third attempt. Would you say this is because they're like, 
faceless and nameless in a study, whereas on Instagram, they're like out in the public? I think in both cases, it's the same thing. It's social approval, right? So when you've said, I'm going to participate in a scientific research study and you're surrounded by master's students, PhD students, and professors, and you know the goal of this research is to assess the accuracy of your ability to rate RPE, you want to be a good boy or girl, and you're trying to be accurate in your RPE rating. Um, and I think um, that leads to conservatism in your rating. And when you're trying to be, you know, death metal hardcore powerlifter um, and, and be the strongest possible, it's the opposite. You, you want to be seen as stronger than you are. And I think in either way, it influences your decisions. So that, that's my take on it, at least. Um, and uh, I think training experience is a huge influence on that, too, though, too. Um, like you, you can see the accuracy of RPE goes from eh, you're off on average by two to three reps. If you've only been training for say six months to, if you've been training more than four years, you're within a rep uh, of being accurate. And that's also influenced by how many reps you have to do in that set. So if you're talking about like 70% of one RM with the squats, it's going to be hard because you're going to get a lot of reps and your global fatigue will mask your actual proximity to failure uh, for, that your muscles can actually handle. But if you bump that up to 80% of 1RM, now people are way more accurate. And that's some, some recent data that we've got coming out of Zerdos' lab. We had people on average less than a rep off, uh, trained individuals who are 80% of 1RM. So very, very accurate. Is there um, research to suggest that people predicting RPE is close to what they end up <clears throat> being, like in the actual set? Yeah, so like, like, do they regress yeah, like, to expectations? Like, it's easy to say after the set how many you had, but it's hard to predict in advance if that's in your program, like do an eight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's yeah. a number of ways you, you suggest you, that. So there's a number of ways to measure this and it's important. So uh, Fisher and Steele basically had people go, right, you can look at your logbook and I want you to do your 10 RM. Now, before you even grab the weights or do anything, tell me what you think your 10 RM is. Now, I think this is the hardest thing to do because you haven't even done a warm-up set. You don't know what it feels like. You haven't actually felt yourself lifting weights yet. And people who have been training uh, four years or more are still within a couple of reps uh, from zero to two reps on almost all movements, which is pretty amazing. Um, then we have the research I did, which is influenced by, uh, by backward thinking logic, like uh, the bias of looking at the past of what you just did, where I'd say, hey, I want you to grab a weight that you can do that you think you can do for eight reps at eight RPE. They'd grab the weight, do the reps, and then they'd rate the RPE and we'd compare the difference. So that, that's very much like, well, I thought 100 kilos is going to be eight at eight. And so maybe it was, you know, like even though it was a seven or nine perhaps. So that's based on their, not even honesty, but their ability to be uh, unbiased based on their prediction influencing their future behavior. Um, and that's super accurate, uh, like, like less than a rep off, except in a few cases. Like obviously if you had failure, you can't fake that. Um, but very accurate that way. And that's, that, that, that research is on nationally qualified New Zealand powerlifters. Uh, then we have research where you are stopping mid, uh, mid set at a point when you think you've hit a certain distance from failure. So for example, in Zerdos's lab, we've done call out a five, seven, and a nine RPE in a set to failure. So doing reps on the squats, we've actually blinded them to the load. So we place trash bags over the bar and they don't know what the load is in the bar. So remove some element of bias there. And they call out, yeah, I've got five more or a five RPE. I've got three more or a seven RPE, or I've only got one more or a nine, R nine RPE. 
So those are, and, and then Hackett's group has also done very similar to that as well. And in all cases, uh, we see that the closer you are to failure, the more sets you do, um, or the heavier the load is. Um, and probably, if now we're comparing across studies, not within study, the complexity of the movements and the amount of global fatigue it produces all are gonna influence RPE. So something like a chest press and a highly advanced lifter uh, with a heavy load, you're gonna be bang on. You're gonna almost know exactly where failure is. You take a novice and have them do 70% of failure on, on barbell squats and then call out a five RPE, they might actually be at a, a two RPE and be able to do like 10 more reps, not five. So um, all of that influences it. And then everyone gets better as they do multiple sets because uh, they get a closer to failure and they have the previous set to inform them. Um, so they're, they're, all of those things go into your ability to rate RPE accurately. I will point out though, because then the obvious critique is, hey, if there's all these limitations to RPE, why are we using it? That the alternatives aren't that great. So there's data. So just, just to give you some additional data on that 70% to failure study, there were people who got nine reps and hit failure, and there was a person who got 26 reps and hit failure. So that means if you program three by eight at 70%, which is like a standard kind of volume day in a programming uh, block of powerlifting, that you'd expect someone to be around like a six to eight RPE on, especially by their third set, right? We would agree with that, right? People can do 10 to 12 reps, 70% on average, which is true on average. But that means someone out there hit a nine RPE on their first set, nearly hit failure. And then on their subsequent set after that, it's probably going to hit the 10. And then it's going to miss their eighth rep when they do their third set. And that's with taking long-ass rest intervals. And there's someone else out there who could have done 18 more reps on their first set and would have felt like I didn't do anything and probably wouldn't have got much of an adaptive response. So the kind of individual differences we see in percentage 1RM loading, especially at loads like 80%, under 80% of 1RM, make RPE a much better choice because you're going to be off by a handful of reps versus potentially 18, like I said. Um, and I think the best of both worlds is to prescribe a, at least if we're talking about someone who knows what their 1RM is or tests it regularly, is to prescribe a percentage to start and then an RPE bracket. So say, hey, I want you to do three by eight at 70% uh, of 1RM. And by the way, that should be between a six to eight RPE. And then you, you kind of cut off all, all the potential places for, for errors. Then you, do the, then you load 70% of the bar, you do your set of eight. And if you're homeboy who can, who can only do nine reps, you go, oh, that was a nine. You drop your load in your next set instead of hitting failure. And then if you're a homeboy or girl who got 26 reps, you jack the load up a whole lot because that felt like a warm up. And then you can go into your next, next sets and have it be closer and closer to what your individual needs are. So you, <clears throat> you've actually almost begun answering the next question we had, which is what is the practical upshot of this variability and how we rate RPE? Um, and the first thing is developmental stages of athletes we want to talk about. So you were saying mm -hmm. beginners uh, tend to be more inaccurate in estimating RPE and more advanced lifters are better at it. Does that mean that over the course of a training career, you might see space for more order regulation of training? Absolutely. Yeah. And that actually matches up with what makes sense. Like um, there's some data showing that individualized programs don't perform any better than stock standard programs for novices, which makes sense. You respond mm -hmm. to everything. You haven't even laid down the basic framework of your adaptations yet. Um, you know, like just like there are studies showing that endurance protocols create hypertrophy. 
and, and novices who are totally untrained. Uh, just like you will probably get a robust VO2 max response from doing strength training uh, if you are completely out of shape. Um, so it makes a lot more sense to start paying attention to individual differences uh, when they can be the bottleneck to your adaptation at the more advanced level. Um, that said, I still think a novice should track RPE and be thinking about how far from failure am I because that creates self-awareness for the athlete, autonomy, competence, and it lets them know what loads are appropriate for me for different, different goals and times in my training, how does it feel, and it establishes some ability for them to rate their own uh, proximity to failure, which can then be used to program load once they get to the intermediate or, not, or advanced stage. And then what about in terms of a phasic structure? Because you were saying that for advanced lifters, above about 80% accuracy seems to be much better. Does that mean in a, in a hypertrophy phase, the degree to which you allow auto-regulation would be lesser and greater as weights get heavier, or that's not the case? Uh, I think if we're talking about an advanced lifter, you can pretty much use RPE kind of regardless because they're going to be reasonably accurate at all times. We're talking being off by a rep or two. Um, and if we're talking about the kind of RPEs we'd use for uh, the programming structure for someone interested in maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to be in between a 6 and 10 pretty much all the time. Um, so I think the only time I might phase in or out RPE would be if I was training someone who had uh, high velocity power as a goal, uh, where you're so far from failure by intent that you're not going to know your RPE. And uh, you'd almost, you could almost use it in inverse. Like if you think you can rate your RPE, uh, you need to stop doing reps or low, lower the load so that the bar speeds a little faster. You know, for example, like if it's a five or higher, lighten the load or do less reps or rest longer because we want that velocity to be higher kind of thing. Um, if I was to use RPE at all, and I would probably just use percentage one RM and be more interested in just, is that bar accelerating? But that's the only time I can think of it. I think for strength or hypertrophy, the kind of loads you'd use if we're talking about intermediate or advanced lifters, which by the way, um, those of us in the powerlifting or bodybuilding culture, when we think intermediate, that is someone who is highly advanced in the literature, right? So like you, like if we thought of someone who could bench body weight, we would think novice powerlifter, right? Hmm. Or will. Unless, unless maybe that, yeah, unless maybe they're, they're, they're will or, or let's say a few, <laughs> just because they, they typically have a lower uh, bench press strength when you normalize for body weight. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's the definition for being trained in, in, in 90% of the studies on training lifters in the research. So, I mean, there are some studies on bodybuilders and powerlifters, but they are so rare as to be. Uh, not the standard definition of, of trained. That said, the research on RPE that's been like done by like three groups. It's like me, Zerdos, and then Hackett has been has done the stuff of proximity to failure. Hackett's group has looked at both gen pop and bodybuilders. Uh, I've looked at um, powerlifters and then reasonably highly trained people. Uh, they had, I think, a 140 kilo squat among trained males and they finished with like a 170. So, I mean, that's decently well-trained. For, uh, for the literature especially. Uh, and then Zerdos's group on the whole has that kind of on the high end spectrum of trained, but but not quite kind of uh, powerlifter populations. So, so for what it's worth, I think if you're an intermediate, you can expect to have the same kind of accuracy on average is what we report as well-trained people in the literature. Cool. Shout hey. out Daniel, by the way, Daniel Hackett was one of my lecturers at uni. And I was also a study. I was a subject in one of his studies, but I'm not sure if it's been published. You say you're a stud. <laughs> I'm certainly not a stud. Um, we can edit that out. But yeah, shout out, oh, Daniel. Definitely staying in. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
big shout out to Hackett Davies and, and the crew there. I've done some some collaborative work with them Davies. on some cluster yeah. set stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So- we, Team, so Tim Davies is a good friend of Alex and mine, and he was on awesome. episode 285 of Weekly Weights, which was actually episode seven, I yeah, think. I think. It was eight or yeah. seven or eight. Um, but yeah, he so his supervisor, obviously, being Daniel, he's been on the podcast as well. Good friend of ours. Shout out, Tim. Um, RIP 285 kilo. Yeah, one day, four years. Awesome. <laughs> um, um, ask him about that. I, yeah, t- tell them, hey, if you see them, I, I need to, uh, I've, only, I've only talked to them on, online. I need to actually, uh, next time I'm out in Sydney, meet up with those, with those dudes. I yeah, I, ask great. him about um, the 285 story. 285. He'll Locked know. In. He, will, he will know immediately. Um, you mentioned this earlier, some of the strategies we can use to mitigate the errors in um, estimating RPE and reps in reserve. Do you want to go into more detail on that? Some of those programming strategies that we can use? Yeah, I think the, the big one is just remember that in research, we're almost always saying, uh, how does A fare compared to B? And we rarely can answer the question of is A plus B even better? Uh, and I would say in practice right now, there's no reason to believe that it would be worse. So probably using percentage of 1RM with RPE kind of gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you somewhere to start if you're not 100% sure, or if you're uncomfortable with RPEs to the point where just choosing a load is stressful, you can go, all right, I'm just going to load 70% of the bar. And then, you know, you can, you can rate the RP uh, after that first set. And then at least all of your subsequent sets are more likely to be in the zone. Um, that's more of practice. Ways to improve your ability to rate RPE, though, uh, there's a couple there too. I think one of the biggest ones is to give yourself some distance on your own bias, is to record your set with video and then rate the RPE when you've looked at the video. I think this typically improves RPE rating because you can be more objective you can step outside of your body and you can look at the, the actual speed on the bar. Um, and then you can combine that with, with how you felt your, your technical skill was. Cause if I'm just watching you squat and I don't know what your typical squat pattern is like, I can't tell if you slightly misgrooved it, got out of position or had some technical fault, which reduced bar velocity, uh, which is why I don't think a pure velocity based approach with no human elements or consideration, I should say, is ideal because um, we've all seen someone hit a slow second attempt, go up seven and a half kilos, and then smoke it. And it's because they just shifted off their left foot or something uh, or got a weird handoff um, or lost their balance at the top of the deadlift but didn't quite get an up-down. Um, they just ended up with an average velocity being slower or that was perceived slower by, uh, by, by the observer or by a gym aware, for example. Um, when in reality, they could have moved it faster if there wasn't a technical fall. So I think um, velocity with RPE, percentage 1RM with RPE, uh, these can all be nice tools to use together. When we do 1RM testing in the lab, we use, it, we use velocity and RPE to help, the, uh, to help us and to help the person collaborate to find the, the least number of attempts we can take to get to the closest possible 1RM. So we're not... What, what often happens when you do uh, lab-based 1RM tests is you make two small of jumps and do a whole bunch until they miss, and then you take the last one they got. But that actually suppresses their actual RPE. Like, we made standardized five-kilo jumps. Like, okay, that dude deadlifted 250. Does that mean he did 245, 240, 235, 230? And, okay, so he actually could have done 270, right? Exactly, right? So now that, that's, that's me exaggerating. That's not actually what happens. But sometimes the jumps are standardized or too conservative because they don't want to overshoot and fatigue the person and they end up undershooting and fatiguing the person from multiple attempts. So a better approach is to track the velocity on the bar, uh, have someone who's experienced powerlifting coach help 
who has seen a lot of max attempts and know what knows what it really looks like, uh, collaborate with the person and ask them to gain that self-awareness and familiarize them with the RPE scale by using it on the 1RM test. Then you can take the velocity that they scored their 1RM at and think about that when you do post-testing because velocity is relatively stable, especially in a trained lifter for where 1RM occurs. So that means if, if uh, they, they hit that 240 uh, squat at a 0.18 uh, pre-testing, you can be damn sure that it's probably going to be around, you know, 0.18 plus or minus 0.02 meters per second when they do their, their post-testing if it's a true 1RM. So that means when you're starting to approach, you know, 0.2 mid meters per second, those jumps on the bar should be around two and a half or five kilos, not 10 anymore. Uh, so that you can make sure you don't you don't over push them, and that's a really effective way to get a more accurate one RM test uh, in in the lab. Um, so that that's that's kind of a cool way of using the, some of these metrics together to show that they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, I do like using video. Uh, another thing you can do is you can do, um, and I do this sometimes in our uh, our practicum at, at AUT for the post grad students. So I have them just pick a random exercise and then pick a partner and then do reps until they feel they fit an eight RPE and then keep going. And that's a way that you can use the same study methodology as, uh, as Hackett or Zerdos uh, to see how accurate someone's ability to gauge RPE is. Um, and then just know that your arousal can affect that. Um, so you, you wanna try to lift and not necessarily like the most hyped up state as possible. Uh, but even if that, that does happen, that's okay. Just be aware that they may, may not be the state you're going to be in for training. So if you get this over-exaggerated AMRAP that, that predicts a high, uh, a high increase in load that you should use for your next cycle, um, then it may be too high. So just, just kind of be aware that if you're comparing apples to oranges, or rather apples to apples on steroids, that you may not be able to kind of handle the, uh, the same loads because you were, you were listening to your, your favorite song like Justin Bieber when you maxed. So, Katie Perry yeah, role. I was going to say shout out to Bryce, um, who was our last guest and loves to listen to Katie Perry when he's <laughs> maxing his squats. Was that at your My recommendation? Because you coach Bryce Lewis, don't you? I do. I've, I've been coaching Bryce since 2010, and um, and he's a good friend of mine, and uh, and I love the music selection. I, I cannot take credit for his music selection, though. That 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 is his own his own choice. I've actually noticed you're an exceptional dancer. I remember that video of you dancing to Brick House that was on Instagram. That was phenomenal. Um, yeah, there was a time I was a, uh, a break dancer as a teenager long before I became a bodybuilder. Is that and why I found you have the earrings? I have a earring, not earrings. And uh, no, I just got an earring because I wanted to have an earring. Um, but uh, break dancing doesn't necessarily require earrings. That's, that's a, a common misconception apparently among blondes in, in Sydney. So, um, so yeah, the, uh, the earring is because is I wanted to have an earring, which ironically is the reason why almost everyone gets an earring. And I've had that since 2000, I want to say 2004 or five or something like that. So I don't even know. I don't even remember it's there until some millennial points it out. Um, and then, um, and yeah. And then Bryce, yeah, I've been working with him for, for almost, almost 10 years now, which has been a lot of fun. And um, I just love how, how much he loves lifting and how enthusiastic he gets. And he's a great example of someone who has found the right arousal state to be in when he lifts. And when he can uh, replicate that regularly in training, he has amazing training blocks, amazing competitions. And I think that's, 
a large part of the reason why he's an elite athlete now is because he's figured out how to do that uh, for himself. Lovely yeah. dude. Suspiciously nice, if anything, but great guy. Um, <laughs> so it's it's you- real. It's actually, he's actually that nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird. I can vouch. Um, so you said early in your last monologue that combining videos and your perception of effort is a good way of um, like increasing the accuracy of your ratings. Something Alex and I have observed is that when you look at a set on video, it almost always looks easier than it felt. And it seems to be the case across all of our athletes. Um, and yet at the same time, when we observe lifters on Instagram misreporting their RPEs, like you noticed, none of them misreport it as less than it actually is. I mean, sorry, more than it actually is. You know what I mean? So they're always underrating. Um, do you think it then tends to be the case that that people sort of have actually a bias towards underrating RPE and they need to push their sets harder? Because our immediate impression was that they don't. And if you give them freedom, they'll push harder than they ought to. And that just seems to be a power thing like mindset thing, a trait of the people who do the sport. Yeah, I think it is a mindset thing. Um, and it may be that, um, especially with heavy loads, the, the perception of difficulty is just higher uh, when, you're, when you're even reasonably near failure or with a high weight. And that's something worth considering. Uh, to be clear, I don't think once someone has established accuracy with RP, they should use video. I think they should just rate the RP. But I think in the process of establishing accuracy, the video can help. Right. Um, that makes sense. So, so yeah, yeah. Just, just to clarify there, because I, I do think that there is more that goes into it than just uh, perception of how, how it looked from the outside. And I have noticed the same thing, that videos look a little faster. Not hugely, I think, but, um, but yeah. Well, some of us can only move so fast. Um, the, <laughs> the, next, the next question, which is something we haven't addressed, is... Whether or so, the APRE study that you mentioned, Brian Mann's one. <coughs> that's yeah. perfect. You got that right in the microphone. Um, that's funny. The mic's here, and I went over here to do it. That's, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> all right. Sorry, we're not normally this annoying to our guests. Actually, that's a big lie. We are. Um, that's the same all good. I, I, I enjoy the banter. Um, so, Brian Mann's study, the APRE one they adjusted the degree to which they progressed on a session to session basis based on performance. Whereas a lot of the measures you're talking about, particularly like RPE and auto-regulating load, they adjust. Also, also third set to fourth set. That's kind of the way APRE works. Oh, that's correct. You use third one. Third so. set to adjust fourth and then fourth to adjust next session. Okay. So there was some degree of inter- intercession, but you're right. It's not the same. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, well, yeah. Sorry. What I was going to say is what's the, what's the advantage and disadvantage of changing like inter inter-session loading as opposed to intra-session loading um, in terms of you know how hard training is, the adaptive response, and then how that would inform progression? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great question. And I think they are subtly distinct. So I think one, largely, APRE is about rate of progression. Um, and I think largely, RPE is about putting the appropriate weight on the bar for the goal of the day based on your current status of ability to train, your readiness and recovery. Um, Not that they can't be used uh, to fulfill the same concepts, but I think, and I'll steal from my my colleague, Mike Zerdos on this, um, when we look at these auto-regulation studies, we have to remember that we are shoehorned into presenting them in a way that fits a research study design, not we are presenting the optimal way they should be done in training based on what theoretically makes sense 
and the limitations and realities of practice. Um, so what that means uh, is that if I was to use APRE, I probably wouldn't do it with all RMs, having people trained to failure all the time and with the same kind of fixed kind of frequency and number of sets that's applied there because that limits my, my ability to control failure as to, to moderate recovery uh, and, and how that can affect frequency and volume capability. Uh, I wouldn't just use that rep range um, and I wouldn't always have a four set system because I might want to do a different number of sets. Mm -hmm. However, the concept of saying, I will progress the load on the bar based on how quickly I can increase load on the bar <laughs> makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? So I might do something like, um, it's a few ways to do this. You can have someone do an AMRAP and just predict a new 1RM off of that. And that will automatically scale your loads to what they should be in the next block. Um, however, we kind of briefly talked about the problems of an AMRAP. A high arousal state can drive your loads too, too far up the next set. Another way to do it, something that Mike T does a lot, Mike Tushir, uh, popular powerlifting coach, is he'll have people do singles at a reasonably high RPE and back calculate a 1RM. Um, so if you're working up to a single at an 8 and you're near the end of a block, and man, that single at an 8 is higher than your old 1RM from four weeks ago, yeah, and like a real eight. So you've got a coach looking at the video that you send in. Not a not an Instagram eight. Alex is literally he's been triggered for an hour by all this talk about regulation. He's like, trust the process, trust the process. Go on. For sure. No, I feel you, man. Um, so like if someone is doing a a accurate assessment of a single at a submaximal RPE to back calculate their their one RM, then you can see how much they should be thinking about going up in the next block of training. And that kind of takes care of it for you. That's the way I like to use the concept of APRE. I don't actually like to use the strict interpretation from that 2010 study. Um, and then RPE, I think, is, uh, is, is used just to make sure that, like, it doesn't matter if, if you did 190 last week and then 200 the next week, and you're like, sweet, then I should go to 210 because I'm, I'm going to keep that same rate of progress if it's simply too high of an RPE. If the goal is to train at a 7 to 9, and training at 210 puts you at 8 to 10 RPE, you just got to drop the load because that's the reality for whatever reason, and we can't predict it all because, like I said, there's so much background noise. So I think um, this is a different conversation, but doing things you can to control that background noise as best you can and using RPE uh, and using the concept of APRE together or where you start to get some, some synergy of these concepts. So in practice, something that both Alex and I would do is if we're observing a client doing, say, you know, a three by eight at around 70% and they're just smoking it, we would be more inclined to say, hey, next week you've got programmed whatever it is, like five kilos more, but let's bump it up 10 because you're smashing it. Um, that does though run the risk of conflating what is just a great day today with actually faster progress than we had initially expected of the athlete. So mm -hmm. sorry if I'm making you reiterate, but how, you know, how can we as coaches mitigate that risk? I'll, I'll use a personal story of being an idiot to, uh, to, to help, to help answer this question. So when I was first reading all this stuff, got excited and hadn't really used it in practice and didn't think about it in much in depth, I wrote a few programs for clients where they would do an AMRAP at the end of every week. Uh, and then that would dictate the next week's load. And I essentially created these incredibly bipolar programs where load was going way too far up or way too far down based on a bad or good day. And then the next week's loading was all jacked up, leading to another jacked up AMRAP of being 
uh, hyper or hypo recovered. And then that leading to the next week of the, the loading being all, all jacked up. Uh, and generally just like really messing with my clients' heads. Um, so I think to, 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 to do that, you want to not look at a singular performance, but you want to look at kind of a collective output from a mesocycle. Uh, so you can look at in the last couple of weeks, uh, what were their singles at eight RPE doing? Or if you spread out a bunch of AMRAPs over the course of a week, what you can do if you have like a bodybuilder who's training the, the quote unquote big six, like an, over, an overhead press, uh, you know, a vertical pull, horizontal pull, squat, hip hinge. Um, is that six? That's four. That's four. Point is, you have a handful of lifts that you're testing, <laughs> spread them out, and you you're a pro kind of, bodybuilder, right? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm drunk. So yeah, you, you uh, all, I only have like 1,800 calories to play with, and they're all coming from vodka. I was going to so, say, it's a bit late in the day for you to be drinking, isn't it? It's nearly 10 a.m. there. Yeah, I normally get it all finished by 7 a.m. It's like uh, I do carb backloading, but alcohol front loading. So it's uh, and then I don't eat in the middle of the day. It's time restricted feeding and drinking. I've actually um, found that. Sorry, we're very off topic now, but this is important to me. I've found that the more I drink, the more I accidentally carb backload because if I smash like 10 or 15 drinks, and it's almost mandatory for me to get a kebab or something on the way home, and then I've raided the fridge and I've eaten a whole tub of ice cream, and suddenly my glycogen stores are incredibly you know, super compensated. Yeah. And then the next morning I have this amazing drunken squat session where I walk out the bar with a little 360 on the way and there I go. Yeah. That, that's a very common thing. Alcohol leading to, to carb and fat backloading for that matter. Um, just <laughs> back eating fat really. loading, you know, back yeah, fat, yeah. that really nice thing that's all around my physique. If you do carb and fat loading, it leads to back fat loading. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, bring it full circle. <laughs> yeah, bring it full circle. The uh, the answer is is that you want to look at more than a singular performance. Okay, that that's that's essentially the the main take home there. Or, so you, or you can be facing a whole all kinds of bipolar ghosts. <laughs> so basically, you need a trend of increased performance for a while before you then say let's increase loading. Yeah, I like to look at like doing a full block review. You know, like not just don't you don't want to hang your hat. And I've done this, and I made this mistake on just the the post mesocycle test. Mm. Uh, I've become much more of a fan of including some singles and not like the single at eight RPE has become this very like, just I'm going to do that because I don't understand it's programming. It's a fucking, gonna, yeah. yeah. But I love singles at a six. I love singles at a nine, like a single at a six. If you think about it, that's still your five rep max. Like yeah, it's nearly that's, an opener. It's not easy. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a 86, 87% of one RM like that. Uh, that should reasonably tell you something about your performance, and mm. it's a great way to start off a set, uh, a series of, of of sets at a high, at a, a low load, high rep. You know, um, could 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 even create some post activation potentiation. You know, single with a six, and then do four by eight at seventy percent. That that's a great thing to do in the middle of a volume block that keeps you sensitized to high loads. Is not hard and might tell you whether or not your uh, your strength is going the direction you want, or at I least where how recovered you are. The the sort of flip side of this conversation though is that if you have an athlete who is progressing really really great with a given amount of training stress then that's kind of an indication that that amount of training stress is appropriate right because they're obviously getting better really quickly so i'm not sure to what degree you then have to jack up the training stress because you're like fuck they're doing better than i expected let's make it harder you know what i mean that yeah yes yeah yeah you you don't want to perfectly match their their rate their, their possible rate of strength with what you do because part of the reason they're increasing strength so well may be that the balance of fatigue and recovery 
which while intensity isn't the only aspect of it, it's part of it, is leading to. Uh, I'll give you another example. Since you guys have had Bryce on, something I've consistently found with Bryce is that he does better training a little more submaximally compared to what he's capable of, mm. right? So if his, <coughs> excuse me. So let's say hypothetically, he could do uh, three by three with 300 kilos on squats, which on a amazing day, he, he, he may be able to do. Not, probably weak. not though. Yeah, weak. <laughs> uh, if we were to do that a couple times in a four week mesocycle and he grinded himself to dust to do it, um, we would probably have an SI joint issue and have a really bad block following that. Um, however, if we dropped that down to like 275, 280, 285, and had that a bunch of times, he would probably smash a record on, on the platform. So that, that's the kind of thing that you do need to be cognizant of. Um, the goal is progress, not doing the most work possible. Um, so you need to kind of look at, at what the, the relationship between those variables are at, for the individual. And autoregulation is not a replacement for paying attention and individual uh, programming. It's, it's, it's a way to help you inform that and dictate some of those things. You don't want to use autoregulation in a lazy way and just assume if I just program RPE, then everything's taken care of. Yeah, so. that's kind of our, our next um, That's kind of our next point is um, some people do consider RPE to be lazy, and I know I do, and you probably do as well, Will. No, I use it. Remember, we spoke about this two weeks ago. I'm on Eric's side. Sorry, we're getting up on Alex now. <laughs> Alex, you're just a cretin, mate. You don't even think. <laughs> you just write some numbers down. You know, here we are looking at the adaptive response, athlete readiness, psychological factors, and you're like, fuck you, do us on the whiteboard. It's fucking early, man. <laughs> it is early in the morning. Alex is <laughs> three quarters the of, the, of the day. <laughs> he's three quarters of the way through a big can of monster right now, and it hasn't quite hit him. Um, go um, on. Anyway, some people consider RPE to be lazy, and that's for the reasons that you just mentioned that haven't put these um, parameters around it. How would you respond to someone making this statement that RPE training is lazy? I would ask him to clarify because in my mind, it requires you to pay attention to more things and do more work, work with the athlete. And if you just use percentage one RM, like I, I could say using percentage one RM is lazy because you're going to use it based on your NSCA handbook. And it says that it's 70% of one RM. That's your 12 rep max. So Bro, if I if want you to think do- we've read any book ever, you are so <laughs> wrong. Yeah, you're, you're on the wrong. You book. own super training. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. all, it's all a farce. I have so, an incredible bookshelf of shit I haven't read, but I send pictures of it to prospective clients all the time. And that's how you get them. That's yeah. right. Well done. Millions. So of I guess what, what I'm getting at is the, the same criticism could be leveled at percentage 1RM, and I would think you could make a stronger case. Like I the, uh, actually agree with you there. I do think just prescribing percentages is, is probably lazier. Yeah. Again. So so then, then it's, it's not necessarily is RPE or percentage 1RM lazy. Uh, or even, man, you could make an argument that RMs are the laziest thing. Just go to failure every single time. That way I always know you've worked hard enough and be damned if that makes the, the frequency or volume so, you know, suboptimal. Yeah, week um, one, 10 RM, week two, nine RM, week three, eight yeah. RM. Yeah. That, that's, that's almost how every study has ever been done in periodization, right? And that kind of makes sense for research because we are now ensuring that we've controlled for load. The, there's multiple reasons that RP is useful. Um, it does take out some of that heterogeneity and differences in percentage one RM, right? Uh, and you, you can go right, even though you can do 20 reps at 70% and you can do 10. Now, if I tell you both to do, um, 70% to an, at eight, at eight RPE, 
it's the same stimulus or not 70% of eight and eight RPE. You do eight reps at eight RPE. That should be roughly the same for both of you with minor differences in your ability to be accurate. Um, so that is better. Um, but if I really wanted this control for as much of the confound as possible, I would just both have you hit an eight R an eight RM, um, which is great for research because we've controlled for that. But in practice, we're not trying to control for confounds between individuals. We're trying to get the optimal response. So, yeah, I'd say the laziest would be just training to failure all the time because then that dictates your, your frequency and it kind of dictates your volume, right? And this is basically why all bodybuilders train very similarly. Like if there was, a, I actually believe Hackett did this too, um, the survey of bodybuilders and found that two-thirds of them used a once-per-week split. Mm. Uh, One-third used a split where they trained twice per week and everybody else was like, didn't exist. So no one's training muscle groups more than twice per week among the mainstream bodybuilding uh, community. And that's because all of them are either on a very high intensity or a very high volume program. So you simply can't train at a high frequency for any kind of time length. And they find through trial and error, this doesn't work. Um, and it's not like you can find any uh, bodybuilding icons who are like, well, I control both my volume and my intensity to train at a higher frequency. So my net mesocycle volume and adaptation is higher. No one says that. That's not the focus of the community. The community is based on an ethos of work really hard and, and either push it to failure or do way more sets than anyone else can do because hashtag at work. And I get that. Like that's in my soul. I like to work hard. I'm also a masochist. Um, but with a little bit of self, self-regulation and awareness of the mechanisms of hypertrophy and the associations between training variables and hypertrophy we see in the literature, and then from applying that in practice, I have seen better results controlling failure to some degree uh, controlling session volume, but training more frequently and getting more longitudinal hypertrophy. Anyway, that was a kind of a, a sidestep. But the point is, is if you limit one variable, a whole bunch, it then has downstream effects on the other decisions you can make. So training always to failure is going to narrow your options for frequency and volume, um, which is why it's probably the laziest percentage one RM um, can be lazy and it's most likely to put you way off the mark for the individual. Uh, RPE with no pastoral support and no mentorship uh, can also be quite lazy because you haven't taught the person how to rate it. You haven't given them a period of time to rate it. You haven't had them send you in videos and look at how close to failure that you, you were. You haven't talked to them about how they like it or not. So I see it as a tool. Uh, any tool can be, can be used incorrectly. I don't think we can with any kind of, uh, I don't know, intellectual rigor state that a tool is lazy right? Tools don't do shit. It's the person who picks it up who's lazy. So there are lazy coaches who use RPE, um, but I don't think RPE is inherently lazy. So I guess what you're saying is that we need to develop a system that kind of um, takes into account all these variables. So we, exactly. are, we do agree, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've done a very good job convincing Alex because he's gone from so entrenched in his opposition to full RPE training. So I think probably using it exclusively now. Yeah. I'm, I'm only RPE coach now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so there's probably one more little question to cover before we take a break. Little question. It could be quite big, um, which is peaking using RPE and auto-regulated training. Mm. So again, not to put words in Alex's mouth, but when I get athletes, as I start to approach a meet, either on the basis of a skills test or just on my history with the athlete and seeing their performance, I start to narrow in on about the numbers I expect them to be able to hit and then write a plan that sort of prepares them for those numbers on the day. Um, how would you instead use an auto-regulated approach to let them 
hit the heaviest numbers at about the right time and come into the day ready to lift as much as they possibly can? Great question. I like this question a lot because this is where um, you can start weighing risk first reward uh, and being, in my opinion, what any good coach is, is conservative unless you have a really good reason to not be. Um, so for example, um, if I've got a powerlifting athlete who competed previously a few months ago and I know what their, what they did, uh, what the, their best attempts were, and I know if they might've been able to ha handle more and they maybe had a technical fault, uh, or just got out of position or whatever. And where I think they, they reasonably could have been on that day. That's going to be my, my primary metric for what dictates what they do in their next competition even actually above what's going on in training to a point. And I'll explain what I mean. So for example, let's say we've got a lifter and they squatted 180, benched 120 and deadlifted 200. Uh, I would, my default would be, let's go up two and a half, you know, is kind of our, our target thirds just, mm -hmm. just to, to, to start somewhere. I'm not saying I'm going to close my eyes during the competition and just, you know, add two and a half to their three attempt selections. Um, and not, I'm not going to ignore what happens in training either. Um, but, I need a strong reason to believe that they can surpass those next incremental PRs before I actually do that on, on game day. So that might be, they are absolutely crushing those numbers in training. They're getting reps with, with their second and third attempts regularly. Um, and then we're going to go right. So obviously we're, we're stronger. There's so much data to show that. And you don't like, you're not someone who mentally just collapse on the platform. We have to always be so maximal on game day. Uh, and then two, uh, if they're just crushing their openers and crushing their second attempts and crushing their warmups, then yeah, that, that gives me an indication we can go bigger. Uh, but I'm still probably going to be a little bit conservative. The only time I'm not is, is if this person is in a position where uh, moving up their numbers more changes the outcome in some kind of objective way. So for example, they're so good that this could be a placing for uh, their country. Uh, this could be a record. Uh, this could be a qualification for worlds, nationals, or something of that sort. Um, so, for example, the way I would handle this question uh, if I was talking about Bryce is different than I was talking about a, a novice lifter who was doing their, say, second comp. Second comp, we're probably going to go in there and hit 2.5 kg incremental PRs, go 9 for 9, get more platform experience, have a great day, and keep kicking ass. And eventually, what you're going to see is the their rate of progress outpaces the incremental PR. And then we can have one of those days where they go up five kgs on their bench and 10 kg on their squat and 12 and a half on, on their deadlift. But it needs to be very obvious to me in their training and on game day that that's, that's possible. Um, and, uh, but, but in general, I would rather see them hit the next incremental PR and focus on the long game. And a lot of that is also about having a career focused mindset as an athlete rather than, uh, everything lands on this meet because apparently I'm going to stop lifting afterwards. Like, no, you're not. Do you want to be training when you're 40? That, that, that's a question I have. Like I ask my younger lifters all the time, like, why are you so caught up on regional, you know, like Midwest championships held in your friend's garage? Like you're going to be training when you're 20 years from now, presumably, are you planning to stop lifting weights soon? And this to kind of get, get it in their head that, if they actually like this and they care about it, they're probably going to be do doing it beyond this Saturday. So let's take a perspective. What's going to serve you long in the long run? What, what can we learn from this and what can we use and what's the appropriate attitude? 
of course we get to have fun too. Like if, if they blow, blow a second attempt out of the water, they're the only one in their class. They've already got a PR in their total and they want to chuck something on the bar that, that I have like 50% confidence they'll make on their third deadlift. Go for it. Have fun. I'm not going to get in the way of, uh, of, of the, of the Viking spirit of, of powerlifting. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So, um, so yeah, but that, I think that's my, my rambling answer to that is how I consider those, those variables together. Yeah. That's very similar to the way that both of us yeah, plan a comp so. phase as well. I almost always plan on the basis of a two and a half kilo PB and then just wait to be pleasantly surprised in like the last week or so of peaking. You know, if somebody's Absolutely. looking terrific, then I might be like, Oh, let's make it five. But yeah, conservative yeah. seems to work. Mm. Yeah. And if you put that in context, it adds up too. like, like, let's say you do uh you know, standard, standard number of comps per year is two to three, mm. right? So if you're doing two comps per year, that's 15 kilos added to your total uh, per year, which is, which is nothing to sneeze at unless you're doing math wrong. Right. Um, yeah. And if it's three comps, it's another seven and a half on top of that. It's 22 and a half. Right. Mm. So it's that, that's like a non negligible amount and it will start to add up, especially with a heavier weight class individual to where, um, you can start going up bigger, bigger increments and you can look at it more on a percentage versus a incremental basis. Um, so yeah, like it's not uncommon if you see someone who would end up competing in the one Oh fives, just based on the fact that they're, you know, six foot two, um, for them to be adding, you know, 10% to their total starting around the, like the 500 kilo mark, that's 50 kgs from comp to comp. Like obviously that's more than seven and a half. Um, but if you're, tra- if you're training like a 52 kilo woman, for example, that's going to be much more online. So I do think you have to consider that as well, but I, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, hundred percent. It's funny though, because when you do take that global perspective, it sounds amazing. Yet I distinctly remember when I was like 18, 19 reading five, three, one and stuff for the first time and how, and you know, reading stuff that Brandon Lilly had said where they were like, yeah, just get, just get two kilos on your max every like month or three. And I was like, fuck that. <laughs> I'm benching a hundred. Like I'm not going to bench 200 for like at least six years at this rate. And six years down the Man. track, benching 105, you know? <laughs> yeah, can you, can you imagine? The, like, this just how crazy that mindset is. Like, it's going to take me six years to bench 200. It's, no one, like, most people <laughs> on the planet are never going to bench 200. So that would be amazing. You're crazy, you 18-year-old moron, you know? Like, that's, it's just, uh, it's just not understanding that the kind of realistic expectations. Like, I remember in my first two years of lifting, my first meet, it was a, uh, a push pull and I deadlifted 225 and I benched 145. Now the best I've done 15 years in is a 252 deadlift and I've benched 150 in comp, but I've done like a 165 touch and go. Like if I was expecting my rate of progress to continue and it really did not, it still goes up like a little bit here and there, but yeah, the, the going from, um, half of that to that took two years and then going from a 10, that to a 10% increase from that took another decade. Mm. So I think that's, uh, that's why you have to fall in love with the process and yeah. fall in love with training, not, not just the outcome or you'll never be satisfied. Yeah. Will will once told a story, um, on the podcast about to Greg, Greg Knuckles. Oh, was it to Greg? Yeah. We were, yeah. You got one. about, um, saying that he would look like Ronnie Coleman if he kept training as hard as he kept training when he was 18. No, I was younger. I was 15 or 16 and I had a personal trainer. And I remember I loved watching Ronnie Coleman videos and I said to him, his name was Lewis. I was like, man, Lewis, you know, this is great. And I reckon if I just stick with it long enough, like Ronnie Coleman's pretty big, he's pretty strong, but I can definitely get there. 
Because I'd gone from doing like sumo squats with the 20 kilo dumbbell to doing like sumo squats with the 40 kilo dumbbell. And I'd I've done the math. Yeah. I'm going to double it every month. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Easy. 800 pounds will be there. And like when I'm 17, this Ronnie guy's a joke. Yeah. That's nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Man, I reckon we've gotten heaps of really good takeaways from this discussion so far. So I'm proposing a quick break and then we'll come back with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about Eric. What do you reckon, Alex? Sounds good. Eric? Works for me. All right, quick break. Let's do it. Weekly Weights. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. I'm Will with our... (laughs) Alex, Alex and Eric, and he's elected to fly blind into the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Very bold strategy. Alex, nice. with number one. Um, if you it. could take Love anyone it. out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? My wife. That is so, <laughs> that is so cute. That's also exactly what Greg said. He did prepare you off screen, didn't he? No, we're both just really good people. Lame. All right, well, <laughs> that is a good answer. If you and your wife could go to dinner with any person dead or alive, who would it be? You son of a bitch. Um, let's see. Anyone dead or alive, who would it be? That's tough, man. No, you wish Albert, you Einstein. Albert, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. Yeah, that'd be cool. He's pretty smart. Um, (laughs) I I, I just want to get hair hair advice, really. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Shout out to your wife, though. Can you please get her to listen? Bump our metrics up a little bit. I guarantee you she will not listen to this. She's tired of hearing me talk. Just download it. You don't even have to listen to it, so long as you download it. Done. I'll I'll borrow her phone, and then I'll tell her that I said (laughs) I'd eat out with her. So I'll give you some brownie points and get you another view. Fuck, you are a good bloke. I tell you what, your wife is lucky. <laughs> all right, question two. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? Mm, that's a tough one. Sheer just impressiveness is Bo Jackson. Good Might answer. be before your guys' time. Oh, okay, you know who it is. Great answer. Yep. He played, um, he played professional football and professional baseball at the same time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I remember this guy. And he took, he used to take those amazing outfield catches and things, like the one where he ran along the wall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah hectic. Yep. Cool. And they, they had this, this really cool advertising campaign when I was a kid in the 90s that was like, Bo knows blank. And the joke was that he knew how to do anything. So I think it was Nike or whatever. And he would wear Nike shoes and be like, he knows how to cook. He knows how to like, he, he could do anything. And they weren't that far off. Um, this is a man who who didn't want a resistance train because it made him get, gain muscle too quickly and looked like that with basically not lifting. So <laughs> My favorite Bo Jackson thing is the um, he said he didn't want to train because he would be too tired for the game. Why be tired for the game? Like, you know what I can do? Like, let's just play. I'm Bo Jackson, bro. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's the perennial outlier. Yeah, I'll just keep it there. I just think he's an amazing human specimen. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, hectic. Good he's answer. St- he still has the fastest 40-yard dash time in NFL history. And it was like in the eighties. Seriously? Yeah. All right. I okay. Not know that. <laughs> Man, I swear when you hear stories like that, you just think like you are literally resigned to mediocrity. 
Um, luckily, I've got a fucking good podcast, and Bo never did anything like that. So suck yeah. it, Bo. Bo don't know podcasts. <laughs> yeah. We should get him on. One in the wrong generation, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Podcasts. I remember seeing a meme about this. It's like podcasts are the lower back tattoo of this generation. Like they're trashy, but everybody wants one, you know? I have two. So I. Uh, <coughs> two yeah. lower back tattoos or two podcasts? Yes. Both. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably your wife's name on your lower back, isn't it? Two of each. Um, yeah, and then and then and then a statement that says, I, "I'm going to go out to dinner with you right next to it." So, yeah. <laughs> but in a different language, just so it's probably wrong. And then in Japanese, down your spinal column, it says, "P.S. I'm paying." And then yes, beautiful. But it doesn't actually say that. I just think it says that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the form of a haiku, I will go to food with my beautiful wifey. It killed it. Is. Very nice. There you go. Um, that's wow. a haiku to Eric's wife. Shout out. Um, okay. <laughs> I can guess the answer to this question immediately. Um, which movie or television character do you most resemble? I have been told that I look a lot like Samuel Jackson. No, I'm just kidding. I've been told, <laughs> I've been told I look a lot like Chris Evans, uh, Captain, you know, playing the role of Captain America. I've also been told I look like a younger version of Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs. And then I've also been told by people who are trying to bring down my ego after I've been told I look like Chris Evans, that I look like Daniel Tosh from Tosh 2.0. He's funny. Yeah, Yeah, he's pretty funny. You're probably not as funny. I don't have a show about being funny. So I imagine You are quite funny. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah. Um, I get a shirt that says, I'm not as funny as Tosh. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of look like him. Little known fact about Eric, um, which I'm so sorry I forgot to mention this in the bio, is that in the the Avengers scene where Captain America is holding back the helicopter doing the front double by, yeah, that was, Eric was actually the body double that they used for Chris Evans in that. Um, Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, uh, he he does all my stunts. (laughs) All right. You are looking um, pretty lean at the moment. Are you doing a, a, a show soon? I am. I'm three weeks out today. Oh, yeah. So I'm honestly mad respect for not having full brain fog. Because if like, I'm talking two weeks into a very short cut from like 20% to 15% body fat. If you asked me any remotely academic question, I'd probably just stare at you blankly for like 20 seconds. I have my good days and my bad days. And uh, sometimes I find if you catch me in an irritable mood, it actually makes me a little more focused. Like I'm high, like everything you do is bothering me. So I have good focus. So, so you're saying we pissed you off very early. In the yeah. Episode. Yeah. Because, because you guys are so irritating. It's actually kept my, my mind at, at a high, high level. So I you appreciate went pretty hard at me earlier. I was, I'm a bit sad about it still. <laughs> hey man, shouldn't ask people about their earrings. You know, you gotta watch out. <laughs> I'm honestly just Call a, me a fucking blonde millennial from Sydney. That's cool. <laughs> That was astonishingly accurate. I mean, that's just a description. I don't know if that's an insult. I mean, if you feel insulted by that, then I guess you just got to do some work on yourself. I hate myself. Yeah, yeah, do some work on your birth date, Alex. Oh. <laughs> I'm fucking older than you. Yeah, I know. Oh, God. All right. Final question. Easily the best one. Your life is being made into a montage. What music would you set it to? You're going to say like My Girl by Otis Redding, you bleeding heart. No, 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 no. I'm going to say something like uh, The Good Foot by James Brown. 
The good foot. I know James Brown. I don't know that one. Can you give us just a very short rendition? Of, of a James Brown song? Oh, go on. <laughs> Do you want to make like, noises? <laughs> we, so we used to, when we started, we'd invite all of our guests to, like, to sing intro music. So we now have intro music. You'll love it when it comes on. Um, but we used to not. And so we would get all our guests to help improvise intro music to weekly weights for us. This is like the first seven to 10 episodes. And they were like pretty tragically bad, but that was part of the shtick. And then once we got intro music, we got people to help us sing a song. And Greg staged a walkout when we got to sing us a song. He literally just ended the Skype call then and there and said, I'm out. That's amazing. That's amazing. I reckon we could have got a good one from Bryce. Yeah, I reckon you can one up Greg though with just a quick James Brown snippet, just a few bars. I'm afraid that if I try to imitate James Brown, I will sound like Eddie Murphy at imitating. It was something me imitating Eddie Murphy imitating James Brown. So I'm going to do a hard pass on on doing a singing James Brown. But anyone can Google the beauty of, of online uh, the, the the web. I've heard it's called. Interlinks. You can just Google James Brown the Good Foot and you can uh, you can hear it. All right, man. Well, we'll be looking up the Good Foot shortly after this episode. That's your job done, Eric. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, can you please just let everybody know where they can find you online, where they can find your publications, how they can subscribe to Mass and all the other things that you have going? Well, first off, thank you guys so much for having me on. This was a really fun discussion. Um, I love auto regulation. I also love banter, and we had both in, in spades. So this is great. Um, so yeah, appreciate your time. And you can find me probably the best one-stop shop is 3dmusclejourney.com. Uh, that's on my hat. If you can see this visually, oh, if this you is can't, audio only. Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand the internet. So it's uh, the, the number three, the letter D, and then MuscleJourney.com, uh, and from there you can find links to Mass. Uh, you can find links to the pyramids. Uh, you can find links to the 3DMJ Vault where our courses are. Uh, and then if you want a little bit more of daily content, um, you can check out my Instagram at Helms3DMJ, and then make sure to check out my new podcast with Omar Isaf, uh, Iron Culture Podcast. Actually, I've been, know that. I've been meaning to listen to that. So um, plug your podcast harder, please. This is the one where you guys talk through Iron History and talk about significant lifters and the heritage of lifting and strength culture and stuff. Is that correct? Man, we, we're taking a broad, even a slightly more broader perspective than that. So Iron Culture is taking a scientific, cultural, and historical perspective on the global uh, lifting community. So, for example, we've had our first five episodes out. Um, the intro episode, this is the intro episode, but then we had, um, Dr. Ben Pollock and Dr. Don Moraes, Ben Pollock. Yes. That Ben Pollock, the guy who can, uh, lift more than any other person on the planet. PH um, deadlift. Is that him on Instagram? You got yeah. it. Shit. For then, uh, lifter. Oh, I, I disagree. Great physique. <laughs> great lifter. How dare you? Um, <laughs> But also a great historian, you know, um, him and uh, Dr. Don Marais, they did their PhDs under uh, Dr. Jan Todd, who was the strongest woman at her time uh, mm. in the world and legend of powerlifting and then went on to contribute to the Iron Game by becoming a historian. Uh, and now she's currently like the curator of uh, the Stark Center, which is at the University of Austin at Texas, which has a ton of iron culture history. So that was episode two. And then since then, we've had conversations with IFBB pros uh, and Dr. Mike Isertel about, you know, John Meadows and Dr. Isertel about um, the decision to use anabolics or not. Uh, we've had uh, Mike T, Mike Zerdos and John Kiley on to talk about auto regulation and periodization. 
uh, and we we've, we've had Steffi Cohen, um, Jen Thompson, and uh, Natalie Hansen on to talk about what it's like to be a woman in powerlifting as the the face of the sports changed. Uh, that that's going to be launched soon. Uh, we had the uh, the the producer of the first documentary on calisthenics training on to talk about uh, the whole culture that came out of New York of of uh, like bar based uh, training. So body weight based training. So we're having all kinds of cool aspects of lifting culture on there, uh, from science, culture, and history. Well, we await our invite. Yes. You guys are the top of the list, baby. <laughs> Talk about what it's like to be a mediocre suburban millennial shit lifter and yeah, small time coach. Okay. Podcaster. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey. Podcaster. There, there's, there's a lot of people out there who'd relate to that. So <laughs> yeah, no, trust me. I'm often told that, you know, I'm one of many millions. So, <laughs> so that's you good. stand strong with your peers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that's it. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much, mate. We'll let you get on with your Saturday. Good luck in your upcoming show. Um, Alex, you got any final words? No, just thanks, man. That was great. Yeah, that was awesome. No, thank, thank you guys. I appreciate the vote of confidence. It was great to be on. Uh, definitely let me know when this comes out. I'd be happy to share it. Sure. Cool. Terrific. Um, I'm Will, W.BerkmanPT on Instagram. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore lift. And we'll chat to you guys next week. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. This episode of Weekly Weights was brought to you by City Strength. City Strength is Australia's exclusive distributor of SPD apparel. You can find them on www.citystrength.com.au or in person in Marrickville. Use code weeklyweights10 for 10% off.